This is Crown Countdown U Radio, Canada's home for college sports on the TSN Radio Network. podcast edition number three right after we shoot all of our studio portions here in the pork hill studio uh known as the hubcast studio we're we're out in rural land here when we say vancouver on the screen we're actually quite a ways from vancouver we're out west aren't we yeah no yeah just just the nebulous west as uh mike hogan our colleague would call it there's literally cows like in a field next door to the yep, building we're sitting right. in we're a right now. Uh, if the wind blows the wrong way, it starts to smell a little bit in the studio here. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's a glamorous life on KGN. Actually, you know, this uh, facility uh, allowed us the ability to do games uh, out of Mexico, of all things. We took a um, a feed out of Mexico City, and with with digital technology, um, we uh, zipped it into this studio, added a second camera through uh, cellular technology, and patched something together from a Mexican feed. Uh, the frustrating thing with uh, the two game, two of the first games that we did uh, out of Mexico, is that um, the uh, Mexican broadcaster and the association down there thought we were making millions of dollars off this so they wouldn't give us the background sound yeah so so <laughs> I, I i said to peter young who runs hubcast i said quick just get a just get a sound sample of a crowd just going <sighs> yeah and that's the way and it worked out okay yeah uh, that was really the... tell the difference you couldn't hear the ref like his mic wasn't working of course but yeah, I mean, that was one of the more uh, interesting experiences I've had huddled around a, a TV screen. <laughs> that was the first game, the game yeah. against Sweden. Yeah, yeah. huddled around a TV screen watching watching a game broadcast from Mexico and having to do the play-by-play in color on it. And it didn't help, too, that uh, Canada was in the midst of spanking uh, Sweden in that oh, game, wasn't it was that? Merciless. Wasn't that the, yeah. yeah, it was merciless in, a, yeah. in, a, in, a, in terrible weather as well. It, it actually reminds me of when I used to do play-by-play for FIBA many years ago. In the 1990s, and um, there uh, we used to have to do uh, women's Euro Final Four. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, then uh, we used to uh, call games live off of screens that were smaller than your average computer, like mm-hmm. smaller than a 15-inch screen. Yeah. And so, if you're trying to read uh, numbers with a drop shadow on them mm-hmm. that are on the front of a jersey, and every woman out there is from the Ukrainian team is blonde and has a ponytail. Good luck trying to sort out which is which. On you just kind of make it up as you go along. <laughs> what you know, what years was that that oh, you were doing this that? Be, uh, I was the uh, English play-by-play guy for FIBA from 1997. Oh, pardon me, 1994 through the end of 1997, four seasons. Wow. So that, 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 that's why I love Arvita Sabona so much. Yeah, I was in elementary school at that point in time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why you like Dirk Nowitzki more as a, as a big guy. But we're not yeah. here to talk about basketball. 
Uh, we're here to talk about uh, college football. And let's start on that side of the border with uh, Chuba Hubbard, because sure. this guy is starting to take off the way a lot of us thought he would uh, with his uh, sprinter-like uh, ability. That being said, uh, with his first three games, even though there's a push now, well, we said it on the show, you'll see it on the show, that we talked about before the game, uh, SB Nation was starting a Hubbard for Cornish campaign yeah. after that that uh, effort of another 200-yard game, this time mm -hmm. against Tulsa. It's now, we've just been forgotten up here. Now it's a Hubbard for Heisman campaign. Yeah. Will, in your mind, this discussion come back to the Cornish Award uh, for him uh, simply because you, you got to look at the, uh, at the level of competition he was facing. Yeah. Oregon State... By far is the worst team against the run in the Pac-12. Yeah. Like by far, 120 yards a game, the worst. Uh, but that's the margin between them and the next guy. McNeese and Tulsa. Yeah. You know, you got you got Texas coming up this week. That, that ought to level the playing field somewhat for him. So here's what's going to be critical for Chuba Hubbard is that, and you know, in our season preview show, I pointed out that he's a, he's a multifaceted back that can be involved on the ground and in the receiving game as well. He did not record a reception in that game against Tulsa this past weekend. Uh, and I think that that's going to be key for him to keep his production up once it gets into conference play is being a receiving, uh, being involved in the, in the air game as well. Uh, because I don't think that Oklahoma State's going to be able to, against the Texases and Oklahomas of the world, be able to run the ball as much as they have in the first three games. Are, are you surprised that they've kept him on special teams? I am. Uh, you know, he's been returning kickoffs, adding 19 here, 20 there. It, it, it's certainly been helping if you're a stats uh, fiend. It's been helping his, uh, his uh, overall yardage totals, mm -hmm. and, and it helps build a number, and it helps build a case, I suppose. But uh, there's a lot of unnecessary risk in that, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, kickoffs, kickoff returns are less of a factor in the game these days than they than they have been in years past. You know, they they've taken at both levels, the college and the pro level, they've taken significant measures uh, in the American Rules game to limit uh, players' exposure on kick returns. Uh, they've you know the research has shown that that's where the highest impact collisions occur and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's less of a factor in the game than it than it used to be. I can see. I guess a justification for it, and that, like, he's, like you said, he's a track athlete too. He's a he's built like an ideal kick returner. Um, but I think as he continues to establish his importance to that team and to their offense, uh, I mean, he's kind of established himself as their guy that that offense really revolves around. As he continues to establish himself in that position, I, I can't imagine they're going to continue to have him return kicks. Uh, watching his video, uh, the one thing that I've been impressed by this year so far, he's less of a straight-line guy to daylight. He's a bounce guy now. Yep. Uh, we've never seen that before. Uh, his uh, training as a, as a sprinter and his level of competition at high school mm -hmm. a couple of years ago in Edmonton, as long as he had a lane, he could go straight for it. Mm -hmm. uh, he's shown that level of adaptability that if something's not there, and, and also through his training too, he's got the strength to push off and find some other daylight. There's mm -hmm. something more to his game mm -hmm. than what we witnessed last year. Would you concur? 
Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, though, uh, when when you become more of a bounce, second-cut type of guy. If you do it the right way, you attack the line of scrimmage where the play's designed, and then you become a bounce guy, then you can create a lot of extra yardage for yourself. But when the holes are there, that's a lot easier done than against a stiffer front when they may not be there. And and what, what I mean by double-edged sword is that can get you in trouble and, and can create negative plays if you're too quick on the trigger to bounce out of the original lane. So um, he's going to have to be careful with that, but it certainly provides uh, an extra source of, of yardage for him. Uh, we're planning on this show to go uh, down to Stillwater and and talk to Chuba Hubbard, but we want to talk to Eamon Ogbong-Bamiga at the same time. Um, his numbers have been very impressive. And maybe they're, they're even more pumped up, actually, because of the lack of experience that's in front of him. Uh, on that defensive line. Maybe you shouldn't be getting this much work. And it, mm-hmm. it might actually be an indictment uh, of that Oklahoma State defense. Uh, I think the one great thing for, for Chuba Hubbard in all of this is that they got to go out, they got to manufacture yards, they got to score a lot of points because their defense is going to give up a ton. They let Tulsa back into that game after uh, after they took, uh, took an early lead. They, they don't look uh, stout at all. No, and I mean, that's stereotypical of most of the big 12 you know high-flying offenses that can put up rack up the points and move the ball and then defenses that allow the high-flying offenses to rack up the points and move the ball um i would say texas appears i know they lost lsu uh when they played them uh but i texas appears to be a little stouter on that side of the ball and obviously oklahoma uh the sooners are as well but um i mean that looks to be the likely limiting factor for this Oklahoma State team is that defensive side of the ball. Uh, as for Amen, he's actually a guy that's been down there longer than Chuba Hubbard has. He was the first Canadian to go down there in this wave. Um, and it's good to see him playing a full-time role on that defense and, and doing so productively. Yeah, yeah, he's worked uh, quite hard to get to where he is yep. and be a starter in that rotation at linebacker. Uh, how much pressure is... Uh, Hubbard going to be under uh, in, in a town like that, in a state like that, in a program where there's only been one Heisman winner and his name is Barry Sanders. Like, you've got to think that with with the flash that we've seen out of two out of the last three games, and he only had eight touches in that one game against McNeese State, I think 41 yards and a touchdown, and then they rested him. Mm-hmm. Um, number one rusher in the country right now, T. Boone Pickens, the, the guy that's put millions into that program, passes away. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of emotion there. Uh, all of a sudden, there's expectation. How was all of that managed in a situation like that? Uh, well, I think one of the big factors that will help Chuba is um, his coach, Mike Gundy, is a, is a really strong coach at protecting his players. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's the guy that's of that, that infamous rant from a number of years ago, the I'm a man, I'm 40 yeah, rant. That's yeah. Mike Gundy. Yeah. And uh, by the way, best flow in, in college football. He's still rocking the <laughs> mullet. It looks fantastic. But um, Mike Gundy is a guy that, like, that, that rant was indicative of what Mike Gundy is as a coach. And he, he protects his players from, or shields them, I should say, from 
uh, unfair pressure from uh, over the top pressure, that kind of stuff too. So I think that that will be that will be helpful for Chuba as well. Stillwater is not the biggest town uh, where Oklahoma State is located, so that can kind of you know it's a little bit more isolated. So that can kind of give them a little bit of space as well. But um, yeah, I mean it's it's certainly a football mad part of the country. So I'm I'm sure the noise will just keep growing louder and louder. The good news for Chuba too, though, is you know he's got at least one more year to do this after mm -hmm. this as well, um, depending on when he chooses to chooses to leave the school. So, um, you know, he's, he uh, if this year isn't, it doesn't pan out into something big for him, well, he can continue going bigger and better next year. Mike Gundy uh, has talked openly about the value of Canadian players coming mm -hmm. into his program and how he intends to um, recruit more in Canada. Mm -hmm. if, if you're operating a uh, U-sports program in Canada, should you be worried uh, about discussion like that? Or are you getting those guys anyway? Because uh, you've got UConn, who has been very successful going into Canada. And there's a, there's a long history of that going beyond just the uh, immediate players. They've got two Canadian quarterback, well, one Canadian and one Canadian-born quarterback. Mm -hmm in their system and probably the best quarterback uh, prospect coming out of um, uh, Quebec since Jeremy Doyon Rock, Jonathan Senecal, mm -hmm. going, going to UConn. Uh, normally, those, those French-Canadian players would stay in the RSEQ. Mm -hmm. Should we, uh, uh, from a U-sport perspective, be worried or is this just something that, that kind of comes with the territory these days? Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is kind of something that comes with the territory these days. But I know for for U Sports programs on their recruiting board, like they're they're identifying guys pretty quickly as uh, okay, this is a potential Div One guy, and like backing off on that guy a little bit when they realize okay, this guy's got legitimate interest down south, and and that's it. I mean, the other tact that we've seen. Um, uh, the University of Alberta take is, you know, going after those guys anyway and saying, look, like, give us your Canadian commitment and we'll allow you to continue uh, pursuing things down in the States. But if you decide that you don't find the right fit there um, or you're not satisfied with your options or whatever, then you can come play for us. And, and he's been quite successful in keeping a number of those borderline Div 1 kids from the province of Alberta. Um, thinking of uh, Jake Taylor, for example, mm -hmm. last year. Um, and that's really boosted his program. So maybe that's the approach that these U-sports schools need to start taking. I think where the biggest effect will be felt on this is where you pointed out is in Quebec. Uh, I think in English Canada, that top, the cream of the, of the crop, so to speak, um, always went down south. Mm -hmm. um, but in in uh, in Quebec, in large part due to the language barrier, uh, this, the cultural barrier, the fact that players are more uh, are more inclined to stay at home. I think historically Laval and Montreal have been able to keep a lot of those guys. Maybe that's starting to change. We'll see. Well, the, the other point is that a number of uh, U.S. coaches have discovered that CJEP is comparable to JUCO now mm -hmm. as a place to source players. Mm -hmm. They love the CJEP system. Mm -hmm. uh, there's good reason for um, Quebec players to stay at home in the CJEP system, and it's an added bonus that they don't necessarily have to do what all those players from Ottawa have done, 
or a few players from Western Canada or other parts of Ontario that have done in terms of going to an academy or at least feel the need that they have to go to an academy, mm-hmm. uh, going through grade 13 at, uh, at CJEP. So, you know, perhaps, and this is one of the things that I want to do with the TV show, is maybe we should be shining a little more light on CJEP because we may not be seeing these guys play at the U-sport level and we may have to wait a year or two uh, for guys that, uh, that, that red shirt and develop their way up. And the guy that I'm thinking about, who's a perfect uh, example of that, is a guy that we uh, feature on our show this week, uh, Isaac Berglund. Mm-hmm. Uh, out of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, went into the CJEP system, played his full CJEP out, and then found a way to uh, multi-directional Louisiana, uh, southeastern uh, uh, Louisiana. Um, Jeremy Conkalongo, the running back out of Vancouver, tried to do that, uh, didn't find his way south of the line, but it still helped him to uh, develop as a football player. And, you know, that was one of my uh, questions to Tom Sargent, the uh, head coach of the Saskatoon Hilltops. Should the CJFL, for example, maybe rethink about how they approach the way they're managing the game? There's a big push from, from a group of individuals to make the CJFL into a U-20 league. Mm-hmm. Guys in the prairies ain't, aren't going to go for that. Maybe the guys out, out, out in Western Canada, pardon me, in BC, could go for something like that mm-hmm. in terms of a development model. Do you think that there's a role for an intermediate development model for, for football in this country? Because CJEP is certainly showing the way in this regard. Uh, yeah, I, I would say certainly. Uh, you know, Junior football is, is still a big factor, uh, both at the U sports level and at, at the CFL level at times, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, Javon Katoy is a good example out here in BC, who's quickly established himself as arguably BC's best Canadian receiver, although Lamar Durant would probably have something to say about that. But, um, you know, the junior ranks are an important... They, they have to exist in this country. Yeah, they, 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 do. They, do, they do serve a market that the universities just don't. You know, there are, there are not really cupcake schools academically in this country the way that there are in the States. Uh, and so, and, and the academic rigors in, at Canadian universities are legitimate across the board pretty much. Uh, and so you have a number of players out there that aren't particularly academically inclined or maybe just didn't really apply themselves in high school and it takes them a few more years to figure it out. Or like in the case of Katoy, there's a guy that never had to do the academic part of being a university football player. And I, because I'm a university guy myself, it's a shame that that guy's talents were not added to the field at the U sports level. But I understand too that you know if he it, he's the type of guy that if he tried to play U sports, he probably would have lasted a year and then then not been overly successful because mm-hmm. of school. Mm-hmm. So um, it is an important part of the development model, not just getting guys to U sports, but at times even leapfrogging that level altogether. Do you think if uh, the CGFL went to a U twenty model, do you think that they could position themselves as a uh, hothouse of developing talent for the NCAA rather than having it as a fallback position for um, individuals who struggle with academics hopping kind of in and out or using it as a position as a transfer year parking spot mm-hmm. between themselves and generally Canada West? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I could see it being successful that way, yeah. Um, it, it's 
it doesn't necessarily have to leapfrog just into the NCAA, but it can serve the same function that the JUCO circuit does serve in the States. Mm -hmm. You know, where you go to, they call it a two-year school down there. You go do your junior college for a couple years, and then you come out and, uh, and go to a four-year school when you're ready. Um, sometimes that's just one year at JUCO, sometimes it's two, whatever. Um, I think that it could certainly serve that position and, and reflect that structure uh, if they chose to do it. Uh, I don't believe that junior football loses a lot by cutting out 21 and 22 year old players. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, I'd say that's probably a pretty controversial position to have. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't good players there, but I just, I don't think that it takes away much from the product if you cut out those players. The only potential concern there though is are there going to be enough players within that limited age range if you cut out those extra two years? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that that can be a concern. Where does the talent like where does the talent drop off to the point where the the um, the game will be negatively affected? Well, that that gets me to my next point, and we uh, discussed it on set here between takes about youth um, sports right across the board, about some teams taking a step back. And it became pretty apparent to me looking through things this week that is that most of the teams have taken a step back in one way or another. Yep. And does that speak to supply line? Does that speak to depth in this country? I think it's just cyclical, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, we had a lot of high profile, uh, you know, elite fifth year quarterbacks last year. Um, just to, I'm mean, not that that position is necessarily the be all and end all, but it's a pretty important one mm -hmm. and a pretty influential one in the Canadian game. Still have Sanagra and we still have Merchant. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we've lost. Kind of feeling it in, in Laval right now. They are. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. About that. They are very much feeling it with uh, with Hugo Richard being yeah. gone now. Uh, I mean, they're. I mentioned this on our show this week, but their longest completion in that in that Montreal game was 12 yards. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's that speaks a little bit to play calling, but it also speaks to uh, not necessarily great uh, competency at the quarterback position. Um, but I mean, just just look out west here. I mean, out west we lost uh, we lost um, Noah Picton. Noah Picton. We lost Michael O'Connor. I'm trying to think of who the quarterback was at Saskatchewan. I'm blanking. Drew Burko. Uh, no, right? no, Burko's a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh man, you caught me! You caught me here. I know Mason Nyhouse is the starter. Yes. Anyway, uh, yeah. so um, you know the teams that are the most successful in the conference right now are the teams that have returned quarterbacks, right? Is is the is the Bison's with Des Catelier? Mm -hmm. Is the Calgary Dinos with Sinagra? Um, that's um, and then. Uh, Oh, I'm Kyle. I'm, Kyle Siemens is the guy that that's we're trying the guy to I was think thinking of. of. We apologize, Kyle. You, yeah. you were outstanding last two years. So. Yeah, uh, but that that has been a significant source of the step back in the Canada West, pretty much across the board, mm -hmm. is the lack of returning experience quarterbacking. Um, you know, Laval's missing theirs. Uh, you know, at Montreal, Dimitri Moran has struggled. Um, so it's I would say that that's been one of the more influential. Uh, issues. Uh, and then in Ontario, I mean, merchants, it's no coincidence that merchants teams at the top of the pack. Um, and then behind him, there's been a whole lot of question marks. You know, Theo Landers is a guy who's in his fifth year. You typically expect more from a quarterback in his fifth year than Landers has shown so far, though it's always tough transitioning to a new offensive system. Um, but sorry, sorry, Vintner's hurt yeah. at Ottawa. But but you, you know. want to talk about transitioning to a to a new system? Do, how much of this is coaching? Because 
obviously you pointed to the concept around Laval mm -hmm. and the conservative approach mm -hmm. that they take on the offensive side of the ball. Flip that over to what's going on in Toronto right now with mm -hmm. Clay Sakara. Oh, I love it. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, how much of that is making that decision to go down that road and how much of it is having uh, qualified uh, competent coordinators or, or position coaches to move that talent forward? I would say the coordinator thing is huge. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and there just aren't that many of those around anymore, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Uh, you know, a lot of those guys have gotten promotions and have become head coaches themselves. Thinking of Ryan Shane, for example. That guy was, well, and Steph Potasic last year. I mean, mm -hmm. those were two of the most innovative offensive coordinators in the country over the last couple of seasons. And they're now both head coaches. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not coordinating those offenses themselves either. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, Tommy Dennison's a guy that's come into the University of Toronto. And it's an interesting story because somehow he was out of the U Sports ranks entirely last year. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even working in U Sports last year. He was helping out with a local junior program because nobody wanted him because he was attached, his name was kind of attached to that St. Mary's mess a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you look past all the courtroom BS in that St. Mary's mess. Uh, that offense was fantastic that season with Tom Dennison being quite influential in how they operated. Uh, so, you know, I, I mean, good on Greg Marshall for going and finding that guy who was just in the Toronto area cooling his heels and pulling him off the bench. And, that, and I love the way that Toronto offense operates. You know, they've got the two leading receivers in the country right now mm -hmm. in yards per game. Mm -hmm. The two leading receivers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's been a large part because of Clayton Sequeira. But it's also been, or Sequeira, if, Clay, if you're listening to this, please get back to us on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Send us both. a text or an email or something. we we got to figure this one out. Yeah, or Tommy, if you're listening to this, yeah, you yeah, can get yeah, back to us yeah, too. Yeah, you're, you're um, on my Facebook, buddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but a, a large part of that's been the performance at the quarterbacking position. It's also been the way they attack defenses. I mean, you watch the clips from their win over Laurier two weeks ago, and man, is he slinging it. But they're throwing deep balls down the seam. They're throwing deep balls to the outside. They are attacking upfield at all times, and you just don't see enough of that. Uh, well, we used, to, we, used to, we used to see it all over the place at this level. We yep. used to even see that at the Canadian Football League level. Mm -hmm. um, wh where has, has, has that style gone? What, why has it evaporated in Canadian football? You yourself, who now coach American football mm -hmm. in, in high school in BC, uh, characterize the, uh, the, the ability of someone to create something on an offense in Canada as a giant blank slate. Mm -hmm. Why is that approach not taken anymore? What happened to the wide open game that we used to have up here? Um, I almost wonder if it's too much for a lot of coordinators to handle because it's such a blank chalkboard. I mean, you can put, because of the unlimited motion and all that kind of stuff, you can line up players just about anywhere on the field. You can have them approach the line of scrimmage just about anywhere. You can do switches in your waggle. You can do all sorts of stuff. And I think that in a position like that, offensive coordinators have to kind of create some structure and limitations for themselves because it can be too much to handle otherwise. And maybe that's what it is, is that a lot of these coordinators are putting in safety nets for themselves that 
that may be limited. I think, to be honest, I think another factor too, though, is that, and, and it's interesting to see that this effect has occurred on the defensive side of the ball, but the um, the progression of seven on seven uh, in this country, I think, has led to uh, better secondaries out there as well. Mm-hmm. And, and I think instead of trashing entirely on offensive coordinators and downplaying what they're doing, uh, I think we also need to focus on the defensive side of the ball. You know, there's a lot of strong defensive coordinators in this in this country right now, and and in the university ranks. And and secondary play, I think, is better than it's ever been. So is that part of the cycle then? Is I, that something that feeds into the cycle? I think so. Yeah, um, and and uh, you know, coaching coaching changes over about as often as players change over at this level. So um, that can be cyclical as well. But you know, I I do, I do think that uh, if you watch the how elaborate the cover schemes are and how well they're executed, uh, it's better than it's ever been. Uh, defending the pass in this country as well. Uh, should we expect uh, the run to make a big comeback then? I've been waiting for that, and I'm not sure if I've seen it yet in the three-down game. Uh, I, there are too many coaches in the three-down game that think that the the bar when you're running the football for how to be successful doing it is unattainable. Um, you know, like you need to, in theory at least, in order to run the ball successfully, you need to average six yards a carry. Yeah. That's tough. That's not easy. There's about one team in the in the country that does that consistently, and that's the Western Mustangs. Um, that's because they have depth, though. So that goes back to where we started in this conversation yep. about depth. Yeah. And and the one thing since I've really started to uh, focus on FCS Division Two, that sort of level. Mm-hmm. There's depth there. There's rotations there. We don't have that here. Look at what happened to Calgary against UBC. Yeah, they managed to to roll over UBC, but uh, coming into that game with three injured receivers, Mm -hmm. Josiah Joseph, the backup quarterback, got into the game in the second half as a receiver when another receiver went down. We just don't have the layers on this side of the border in comparison to the other side. No, and, and that what the problem, the issue you speak of there is the size of game day rosters, right? Yeah. They're only traveling, I think it's 45, maybe 50 yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the Canada West, yeah. as opposed to you look at games down south, they can dress freaking 18 receivers because mm-hmm. they've got 100 kids dressed for mm-hmm. every game. Um, I mean, so that was part of that issue yeah. there. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think the depth's an issue. And it's interesting too. Like the old adage in football is that being able to run the ball is one of the one of the best indicators uh, as to your success as a team. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can run the ball successfully, then then you're going to be a winning football team. And I think that that kind of permeates from the from the game south of the border. If you look at the Canadian game, though, I, I found that there's a there's a cap to that. Uh, you if you can run the ball successfully, that can take you from being a bad team to a slightly above average team. But the only way you can acquire, you can reach excellence and elite status in this country is by having by having a strong passing attack to go with it. Let me give you an example uh, here. Sorry. Okay, go ahead. Let go me ahead. give you let me give you an example here. Ed Elnicki, a couple years ago mm-hmm. at the University of Alberta, had a phenomenal rushing season, led by a strong offensive line yep. in front of him. Won the Heck Crichton Trophy. Managed to get them to three and five and backdoor into the playoffs. I yeah. think it was. Yeah. Right uh, when I was at UBC, Brandon Deschamp was our running back, and he was one of the leading rushers in the country both years that I was there. And we were two and six, and then we were four and four. Right there, there is a cap 
to how successful you can be just being a strong rushing team in the Canadian game. And it's unfortunate that it's that way. I'd like to think otherwise, but what I'm seeing on paper and on the field is telling me a different story. Is it not, though, a case of establishing that running game, establishing depth in your running game in the, in the Canadian game, while there's sunshine, while the weather is nice, because when November uh, weather rolls in and mm -hmm. changes that variable mm -hmm. on teams, uh, you're, you're going to run into it in this country. Nobody plays in a dome stadium at the U Sports level. You're going to need to rely more on that running game when the weather turns nasty. Yeah, uh, you know, you would think so. Uh, again, though, you have to have confidence in passing, even in those weather conditions, mm -hmm. to be able to push through. Right. So again, I, I would say the best way to put it is your rushing attack sets your floor and your passing attack sets your ceiling. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's I, I would say that, that continues throughout the year, because, again, that that uh, that last UBC team I was on, you called this game. We went mm -hmm. into Calgary in yeah. the first round of the playoffs. We were a run heavy attack with not a great passing attack that year. And that ultimately was our downfall. Yeah. Uh, before we go here, uh, one game I want to focus on, Notre Dame-Georgia. Chase Claypool, of course, at the center of this from our perspective. Yep. Uh, but this is a huge test for, for the Irish, isn't it? It's a huge test, and there's a lot on the line for the Irish. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, they really seem to get things untracked uh, against New Mexico. Uh, the offense was not great in their opener against Louisville. Uh, and Ian Book, their quarterback in particular, looked did not look like the guy that we saw last year at the quarterback position. Um, but against New Mexico, he looked a lot more comfortable. And the question for Notre Dame this year has been not will Chase Claypool be a weapon for them, but who else is going to be a weapon for them on offense? Saw because, a few of those in the second half against New Mexico. And we did, yeah. yes. And that's what I was going to say is yeah. that you know they started to discover some of those weapons around Chase Claypool, uh, and that made Ian Book's job a lot easier. But it, it should be a really fun matchup because Georgia's rolling on all cylinders right now. They ran Arkansas State out of the stadium last weekend. Uh, it was they they were up thirty four nothing at the half, I think mm -hmm. it was, and the total yards gained was like three hundred and sixty to thirty or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't even close it was not Montreal Lavelle no it was not no it was not and and what Georgia has as well is they have a very strong quarterback in Jake Fromm yeah. at the helm there as well um so I mean either way this one should be fun the Irish I I'm not as well I I would say I'm not as concerned with the Irish on the offensive side of the ball as I am with them on the defensive side of the ball in finding a way to stop that Georgia offense um though the Georgia defense based on the stats that I was just giving you, looks to be an elite defense again this year too. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how the Irish try to attack the Bulldogs when they have the ball and uh, to see if they can have any success doing so. I don't know where that game's being broadcast, by the way. I'm assuming it's over at CBS because uh, it's being played out of Georgia. That's an SEC yes, thing. Yes, that is correct, yes. For a, for a, for a network uh, game. So yep. it, it will be available somewhere in Canada. Um, so that'll, that'll wrap things up. It's my birthday today and my wife is waiting for me for a dinner and I'm doing a podcast instead. All right. What, so I'm going to actually, turning? I'm actually going to get hell on my birthday. What are you turning? I'm not going to disclose that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep people guessing. Yeah, there we you, go. You, you, could, you could judge by my hairline. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you would have to have a hairline. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. That means I'm over the hill. Um, our thanks, uh, as usual, to the folks over at CFL Reddit for doing all the distribution on this. 
the TV show Wednesday on TSN 1, 12 o'clock Pacific, 3 o'clock Eastern, every week moving forward. Now, there's going to be a few times where we're going to be on Thursdays. We're definitely on Fridays. I'm sorry right now that we don't have a online option for you. So set, set a PVR. If you don't have a PVR, I'm sorry, guy, go out and get a PVR so you can so you can record this thing. Yeah, there you go. I by the way, thanks for telling. I didn't realize we were moving over to the main network this week no. until all of a sudden I saw it on my channel. So I was like, oh wow, cool. We're on TSN one. Well, apparently they're happy with what we do, so that that's a good thing. Um, and. We would probably disappear if they weren't happy with what we do. So, so it's a good step forward for us. Uh, for everyone on the uh, on the podcast here, that's Gord Randall. I'm Jim Mullen. Uh, talk to you next week and tune in to the show this week.